I'm Dr. Tagrid, your friendly child psychiatrist, and this is a space for young people, families, and professionals who want to understand neurodiversity and mental illness better. I'm here to help you make sense of the most complex of issues in the simplest of ways. Let me walk you through topics that are important to you, from autism to trauma and from depression to self-harm. In this podcast, I'll bring you expertise, explain the science, and equip you with practical tips and knowledge. Join me, Dr. Tagrid, your friendly child psychiatrist, for 30 minutes every Wednesday on all listening platforms. Today we're talking about depression across the ages. We're going to talk about depression in adults. We're going to talk about depression in young people. And we're going to talk about depression in children. And with me today, I've got my colleague, Dr. Murad Wahba. Dr. Murad is a consultant uh, adult psychiatrist who has experience in mood disorders, and that includes bipolar disorder, depression, and other forms of mood difficulties. What we want to talk about today is what is depression? And I know that this term gets used a lot in public culture and in in popular culture, and it's used to describe any sense of sadness or lowness or not being engaged as expected in daily life. But let's dig in deeper into that and think about what depression is really. And we're going to think about what depression looks like for adults, but also what depression looks like for children and young people, because those are two completely different things. And then we're going to try and talk a little bit about why depression is a bad thing. I mean, people get sad. And is that a bad thing? And because there's a lot of discussion and chatter around, are we medicalizing or pathologizing things that are part of the human condition? And then we're going to talk a little bit about treatments. We're just going to try and touch a little bit on treatments and how that um, works. Let's talk about what depression is. Okay. Well, I mean, the, 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 when you diagnose something like depression, when you diagnose things in psychiatry in general, because at this point we don't have any any internal tests that tell us, for example, you know, like if you've got somebody with diabetes or high blood pressure, you can get some numbers to tell you this is high, this is low, etc. But the way we diagnose things within psychiatry is by looking for what we call syndromes, and syndromes are generally a group of symptoms which we see together. Um, in different groups of patients. So when we diagnose depression, we look for a certain group of symptoms for a specific period of time. And when somebody hits that th- threshold, we say this is, this is depression. Very simply, depression is a sustained period of low mood. Yeah. So, but it's not only a sustained period of low mood. It's a sustained period of low mood that's usually out of context with the circumstances that are there. And it has a lot of physical and psychological uh, symptoms that go ahead with it as well. So, for example, it's one of those illnesses that really just takes over the body and the mind completely. So, when somebody's low, when somebody's depressed, they don't only feel sad; they feel sad, but they also feel an inability to to feel pleasure at all. They can't they can't experience joy sometimes, um, or or the body becomes unable to have that experience. Now, that's not true for everybody who's depressed. But for a lot of people who are depressed, this is part of um, part of the core symptoms or the, the symptoms that need to be there. 
a lack of energy. So it, it zaps your energy. It takes it away. It affects your sleep, your appetite, your sex drive. All, all the things that your body does normally are affected. Um, it affects how you think and how you see the world. So whereas somebody who's not depressed might have a, a, a semi-accurate, you know, representation of what's happening around them, a person who's depressed sees everything with a bit of an, uh, of, of a negative tinge. So they think about themselves in very negative ways, for example, so they can think that they've caused problems for others. They can feel a lot of guilt or they can feel really worthless when thinking about the future. They feel like, you know, the future is bleak. I'm never going to get better. And this becomes part of the problem of treatment because it almost self reinforces. So it reinforces itself. I'm never going to get better. I might as well not try when thinking about the world, the world is unjust, etc. So it just takes over. Um, and the worse it gets, the more it takes over. So if I'm thinking at the very end of the spectrum, for example, maybe the people that I've seen that are really, really ill, their body shuts down to a degree that they don't speak, they can't talk, they can't drink water, they can't eat. The body goes into a, a kind of a complete shutdown state. And that's interesting because the word depressed from a linguistic point of view means pushed down kind of pushed down right into the ground and and people often think about okay you know i'm gonna if i read through the symptoms of depression online well that applies to me and i'm and, I'm, and honestly it does for a lot of people at any given point you're gonna find that people have experienced those emotions and those difficulties and felt like they're literally pushed down on their knees and cannot get up but i guess what we and when we were preparing for this episode we did discuss this didn't we and we and, and you said something that really struck me you said something about mood um losing its flexibility or losing its range so people stop experiencing the range of emotion stop being able to bounce back the way that they are usually able to and then let's think about how that looks like in someone who's younger. So let's think about those symptoms and how they translate for someone who's in their teen years, for example, or early twenties. Uh, Is there a difference? Yeah, well, there's. I mean, there, there's certainly a difference just by virtue of. Well, first of all, there may be there may well be a biological difference in itself. But what I'm thinking about is is kids and adults express themselves and express how they're feeling in very different ways as well. So. Even if we think of people in different continents, you know, so people in countries where there's not many uh, ways of expressing emotion, people can express emotion by talking about physical symptoms, for example. So somebody who's depressed in a different country where they, where this is not part of the, of the conversation, they can start to say, you know, I've got a bad stomach or something like that. They, they express this differently. So by virtue of your experience, Dr. Taggart, how, how, how do you see, uh, when adolescents present with depression? You see this person who's developing, who's learning to converse with the world, who's learning to converse with their own emotions, who's learning to converse with adversity, with difficulty, with um, happiness, with relationships, who's building a rapport and trust with people around them and, and above all with themselves, building an identity. And then when things hit 
that threshold. And we're going to talk in a minute what we mean by threshold. So when do we say, well, that's not okay anymore. But when things hit a threshold for children and young people, it is devastating to see because it affects how they develop. Literally, it affects how they develop. It's like a child breaking their leg in the middle of learning how to walk. It's devastating in terms of how um, how much it delays them in their development, in how they view themselves in developing their identity. And it pushes them back so much in terms of how they learn to cope. Because these are the very basic years. These are the core years of when people learn, when we learn how to cope with pain, with adversity, with the human condition of being sometimes frustrated, feeling stuck, feeling pain. Because pain is developmental, right? Pain is is how we grow. But then when you lose that elasticity, like you said, that's really damaging. A lot of young people might present withdrawn, distant, less animated, quiet, not engaging in their lives. and But most young people I see tend to be on the other side. So tend to present very angry, very irritable, very loud, very out there. They start doing really risky things. They start drinking, using drugs, having unprotected sex. They start to do things. Self-harm, obviously, is one of the things that are sweeping the nation here in the UK and across the world as a form of, of, of expressing angst and expressing pain. So it's very, um, it's very out there for, for teenagers. For children, interestingly enough, it's a bit different. Children under the age of 10 tend to develop their own ways of, ex- of telling the world that they're really stuck. And it's not like you said, language is not the first thing that they use. So they'll tell the world that they're in pain by literally their body telling the story. So they literally will start to get sick. Some children will experience very real symptoms. They'll get more ill more frequently. They'll start to have stomach aches, various ailments and pains, their immunity drops. Um, They become more, sometimes they become the opposite. Instead of being oppositional, they become more and complacent, more compliant, more quiet. So uh, the name of the game with children, young people is detective work. Yeah, no, it sounds like it. And it's, it's, it's really interesting how, how they express themselves so differently as well. And, I, and, I, and, and I'm kind of thinking now, when you're talking about these teenagers, when, you know, when they are learning to navigate the world and when they start to build the story about themselves, because this is also part of the thing. So you... So the interesting thing about internal states in general is that there is a continuous interaction between what's happening in your body and what's happening in the world outside and what's happening in the people you interact with. So when you start telling yourself a story and you start interacting with the world based on the story you're telling yourself, the world interacts with it the same way. So, you know, it kind of, it's, it's, they become like self-fulfilling prophecies, you know, nobody likes me. I'm not going to reach out to anybody kid becomes a loner, you know, they don't have any friends, it reinforces the idea, and then they kind of go in these cycles. So this story that they tell themselves, it just gets stronger and stronger. And then you build, when you're starting to build this this idea of yourself as well, you can kind of take it with you into adulthood. And 
And it's really, they're really powerful, these stories that we tell ourselves in all aspects of, of psychiatry. And if you think of something like post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, which isn't what we're talking about today, but it's just another example of narratives. Survivors of assaults or wars um, have stories about why they were assaulted and the stories tend to blame themselves. And then it just kind of goes into this cycle as well. So I imagine it's such a malleable age and it's so, um, and the brain is malleable and it's learning so quickly. And that I imagine intervention is so critical at that time um, as well. So it's, um, it, it kind of, it's, a, it's quite an important time in, in development. Mm. And and depression is one of those things that hit people very early in life as well. So in that stage where they're trying to figure out who they are and then very quickly, and, and I see that a lot of them, it, it, with with my young people where they're improved in terms of the symptoms of depression, they're doing very well, but then they feel very lonely and lost because they're improved. So they get depressed because they've lost their depression. And it is, it is, I mean, I've had a young person literally tell me that I don't know who I am if I'm not struggling. And it's, it was such a deep realization that that young person made. And it made me think about when we talk about depression, when we tell people, well, this is called depression. And that's the next bit now. Let's think about why are we calling? I mean, we're putting on these hats. We're telling people we know what's wrong with you. And it's not normal to be this sad. It's not normal to be this upset. Um, what authority do we have to say that? I mean, isn't being sad and low a part of the human condition? I mean, we've got so much art out there and beauty in the world that was created by people who would today be diagnosed as depressed. Yeah. And they're really not mutually exclusive at all. You know, I mean, I think artists have always used pain to be creative and, and, and pain has always been a catalyst for people to, to express things that are happening that they can't talk about. I don't know if you know, you probably do know, you know, Salah Jaheen, one of, uh, one of the poets, uh, Egyptian poets, you know, he, I think he was quite famous. He had a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, you know, where he would kind of write his poetry would change according to his mood. And, and, um, I think, I think it just, it's about where you draw the line, really. I, I think, I think the, the main thing is, are you managing to cope or not? You know, are you able to live your life the way you're living or not? So we say, okay, we well, have these array of symptoms for more than two weeks. That's when we diagnose it. Yeah, that's fine. But in reality, you don't go around looking for the people that have these symptoms for two weeks. You know, usually people come to you and say, look, I'm struggling. I can't keep going like this. You know, I've hit a wall and. I am, I've changed, uh, you know, the, the interactions, the people around me has changed. I can't, you know, enjoy anything anymore. Or you get this other, uh, you know, side of it, which is, you know, I'm really irritable and I can't stand anybody. I'm, I'm, I get angry really easily. My fuse is really short. I'm not sleeping. So, um, do you really need to work with that person and what they want? I mean, I, th I think that really is at the heart of, of any, everything that we would be trying to do is that, okay, you are at point A, what does point B look like for you? What, what are you like when you're well? How can we get you there? What kind of things do you usually do that we can try and help you to do again? And then do you need kind of something chemical to help you a little bit? Do you need some guidance? Do you need somebody to come take you out? Now, this line is the same for children, young people. But, um, and I have this conversation a lot with parents because in, 
people, I don't know how to put this, but because I feel it very much, I can empathize with it. Um, when you're looking at your own child and someone is telling you that they're depressed, it's not just a phase. Um, they're not just going to grow out of it. They're not just going to get over it. This is not just them being teenagers. They're ill. It comes with a lot of pain. And I think what we sometimes disregard in our profession, working with children, young people, is the impact of a diagnosis and the impact of the illness of a young person on their family. But also the reality that um, depression and mood disorders run in families and they don't, they often don't occur in a vacuum. So some, some young people do uh, just out of the blue develop a mood disorder, but often there is something that pulls the trigger. There's an event, there's an index event, whether it's a massive event or it's an event that's perceived as really impactful. And then this trigger event often does not just strike the child or the young person. It strikes their whole environment. And, and people in the middle of trying to make sense of that, they see their child is struggling. And people will kind of uh, instinctively try to help them. They'll try to help them cope. They'll try to push them. They'll try to support them. They'll try to protect them. They'll work with school. They'll work with counselors. And then at some point, something happens and they ask for help. And most of the time, what I tell parents is that with children, we don't care about the name. We don't care about diagnosis. So we do, we do put in, and there's an episode that's, um, that we, that I made earlier about diagnosis and what the value of it is. But for children, diagnosis is almost never stable. Things change a lot. We do make a diagnosis to capture what happened in that moment in terms of, okay, these are the symptoms. This is what we think is going on. But more importantly is the narrative is the story of what is going on. And a lot of the time when I'm making a diagnosis of depression, making a diagnosis of, of a mental illness in a child under 10 or a teenager, I'm thinking about, is this child A, struggling emotionally, physically, cognitively, so their thinking is affected, the way they view the past, the present, and the future is affected? And is this state stable? So is it part of the mood swings and mood dysregulation that is normal in the, de in the development of children and young people? Is that mood, like to borrow your term, flexible and, and kind of mobile? Or is it stuck, stuck on low? And no matter what this child engages in, no matter what is going on, it's still stuck. And that stuckness is so evident across everything at school, at, you know, sports club, with friends, whatever. And this stuckness is so, um, is affecting them in a way that is noticeable. And then we make a diagnosis. And ultimately what we prioritize is, like you said, impact, because these are very sensitive years. So sometimes we intervene preemptively. We say, well, I don't think this is depression, but this is a depressed mood and we need to intervene. Because if we let it go, if we leave it, 
this will affect their education. So they're, they'll, they'll miss critical time at school. This will affect the relationship. They'll miss critical times in building relationships. It'll affect how they receive parenting. It'll affect how they interact with their parents. It'll affect the environment at home. So I've seen this time and time again where parents, families try to cope with mental illness within themselves and put massive pressure on themselves. Families who are going through difficult times as it is, people who have lost their jobs through COVID or going through a family separation. And then they're trying to also cope with a child who's ill and that feeds back into the difficulty of the family. So we kind of intervene preemptively, to be honest, in, in, in a lot of ways. We don't often pathologize though. So we do have these conversations with these conversations with with young people and with families about developmental depression, kind of developmental angst, developmental pain, and it's it has a name. It's like transitional depression or transitional crisis. It's absolutely expected for people to struggle when their relationships, you know, at teen years, when your relationships style changes with your parents. They, they start a, you want a, a grown-up relationship and they still treat you like you're 11. Same at school. And, um, and we talk about that as a trigger. Sometimes that affects people to the degree that they become depressed. And sometimes it's just something that they, they have to adjust to. So that's, um, that's from a child and adolescent perspective. What, what, what is your take on this? Because I, I'm mindful that you see people at the other end of this in their 20s after they've graduated from our care. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, I guess it's kind of from 18 to, and there's no upper limit really, um, I think so. I, I think a lot of what you're saying rings true in the same way, really. I think, I think you need to put what's happening into context. I think maybe the, the difference is you're dealing with adults who, who are kind of mo most of the time self-sufficient and can look after themselves and, and uh, can have a little bit more agency in what they want and then uh, how they take things forward. I mean, I'm sure you take the children's perspectives into consideration and you work with them as collaboratively as possible, but I guess there's a different dynamic when a person becomes an adult and, and they start to you know, take responsibility for themselves, etc. But I would say, I think it's really similar. I mean, I think maybe, so because I'm not exactly sure of uh, the nature of interventions you're talking about, but I think if somebody comes in is finding life difficult, there are things that we can offer them. So, you know, the, the, the GP, so for example, the, the way it works in the UK is that it's a tiered system, as you know. So you know, about, I don't know, 90% of the population will be treated within primary care. As in, as in GPs or family doctors? Within the GP and the surrounding, you know, so a GP also has, you know, talking therapies, uh, which has, uh, which can deliver uh, psychological therapies which teach people how to interact with their mood, et cetera. There's also third sector organizations, which are charities that offer uh, educational classes, that offer groups, that offer community. From where I'm sitting, it will really depend on the presentation of, of the person that I'm seeing and kind of how, how entrenched are things. So you can see people who are, there's different ways of tackling this basically. Generally, it depends on how severe the depression is, first of all. So, if the depression is very, very, very severe, sometimes you need to do a drastic intervention straight away. So let's say, for example, if somebody comes in and they're in that state, yes, so they're not able to eat or drink or talk or anything, you can't get anything into them. 
we can have a very uh, invasive in uh, intervention, just like electroconvulsive therapy, for example. So electrical, electroconvulsive therapy. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna I'm, uh, talk about this in a full episode later, but we'll let's let's give people just a snippet about it. Yeah. So electroconvulsive therapy is a kind of therapy where basically it's a very controlled procedure where people uh, come to a clinic where you've got a psychiatrist and an anesthetist and some nurses. And what you do is people come in, they have um, um, an anesthetic, so they, they're put to sleep and they have a muscle relaxant be, so that when the seizure occurs, the muscles don't contract too much. They don't seize up too much. And then what happens is that you kind of induce the, con you, you, you start a controlled seizure. So you deliver an electrical current through the brain to deliberately uh, put the brain in a, in a state of fit or in a state of seizure. And that's, that's one of the most stigmatized uh, interventions in mental health because of, um, of a lot of media. Yeah, I mean, it's really remarkable what happens after a few sessions of ECT. You would literally see somebody in that state two weeks or maybe one even one week sometimes later they are back up eating drinking talking it is nothing short of remarkable what what the, what this kind of intervention can do and you usually do it for like 12 sessions to usually see an, 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 an outcome from the first few sessions and then you have a, a period of acute treatment and then you usually stop and continue with medication there's different ways of delivering it but and it's generally, you know, you've got the risk of the anesthetic and then the, the issue mainly with ECT is that it can affect your memory. So that's why uh, kind of people can be a bit cautious around it. But it's not one of the things that am I right in thinking that there is no long term side effect to ECT, even the memory effects are short lived. Uh, some memories come back, some memories don't always come back. So this is kind of I think the, the, the worry for some people is that. Sometimes kind of events, you know, people, there are some events, they just, they can't remember, you know, and, 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 uh, and um, sometimes they're, they're lost, you know, so that's why people are um, sometimes aware of it. And, and it's one of the interventions that you have to have a person's consent to be able to, um, to administer unless they're in a really life threatening situation. So it's always, as with any area of medicine, it's always a risk benefit. What's the risk of leaving this person, which is usually the deterioration and, you know, God forbid, it can lead to death versus doing this intervention now and getting this person better, you know, so it's, um, it's always this kind of equation. So sometimes you interfere very severely, very quickly. This is, this is just what you have. It's like going into, you know, imagine getting a car accident and then you go um, into an operation and the surgeon sees a bleeding spleen. They open up your stomach. There's just, this is what they need to do right now. Open up the stomach, fix the problem. And then if we go to the other end, you get people who can do very well with things like self-directed help, for example. So people with kind of milder depression, they can do with things like self-directed help, for example. Or they can do well with things like cognitive behavioral therapy in a group. Yeah. Or they can even some, sometimes uh, join an exercise group, you know, so uh, uh, having 40 minutes of group exercise three times a week seems to have a good antidepressant effect as well. Exercise generally is quite protective in that way. Uh, things like cognitive behavioral therapy, that's short term, that is uh, delivered in primary care. So, for example, so cognitive behavioral therapy, what it does, it helps you break down situations that you feel are one. So, for example, we, as you and I are sitting here talking now, there are a few things happening. So, there's all sorts of processes happening in my body, all sorts of thoughts going on in my mind. 
there, there's a process that's enabling me to talk to you now. If I were to suddenly start having a panic attack when we're sitting here, what might happen is that, for example, I might get a thought that, you know, oh my God, I'm, I sound terrible or uh, that, you know, I, I shouldn't be talking about this. I don't know what I'm talking about. Right. And then this thought triggers another thought and this thought triggers another thought. And then these thoughts trigger a physical response and then they kind of start to feed each other. Yes. So for somebody who's not aware of, of that happening, they don't know that they just have these thoughts and they don't know that they just find themselves in the middle of the attack. It happens almost automatically. So things like cognitive behavioral therapy, what it helps people is it helps people to, first of all, distinguish, break down what they're experiencing and then try and break cycles that they get themselves in via either something that they do or a way to think. So for example, let's use the example of the panic attack. If I start having this thought, first time I had it, it was awful. Second time I have it, I now know that I'm having this thought. So I realize that I'm having it and then I can do something different to break the cycle. So that, so for example, I can hold on to the table or do a controlled breathing exercise. So I bring my mind back to my body. We're thinking of depression. Let's say somebody's being invited out. My friend, you know, I'm feeling sad. I don't want to call my friend, even though I know that my friend usually helps me get out of these things. But you find that you get the thought that, okay, no, they don't want to hear from me. I'm a burden to them anyways. I'm not going to call them. And then you give in to that feeling. So you get a bit worse. So you introduce an intervention there. So basically it almost helps disable the depressive uh, uh, process in a way. So CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and other um, kind of um, therapies that are related to this family of therapies, like behavioral activation. And there was an episode that I talked about psychological therapies earlier, if people want to want to scroll back to that. But this is one of the most used uh, interventions as a first line of treatment for people. Because it is so effective, it is so efficient, it helps people manage the the heft of it, most of the symptoms that keep people at home, keep people away from work, keep them from activities, kinds of re-engages them in life. And it's the same for children and young people, by the way, other than children under the under 10, um, where we use different therapies like play therapy or art therapy, which are kind of can be adapted into a lot of things. But that's the first line. And it's so effective and helpful, isn't it? And it's it's very flexible. So people can use it themselves, like you said, or they can use computer uh, programs that help them or books or workbooks. Sometimes it's delivered in groups. Sometimes it's delivered as a form of kind of low-grade counseling through phone uh, intervention. Sometimes it's delivered in, in schools again, as a low, as a low level intervention. So it's a very agile, kind of easy to use intervention and families in our world, uh, we work very closely with families. So families are aware of what is going on most of the time. If the, if the young person is okay with that, it tends to, it tends to help them work through the workbook because it's very uh, regiment. It's a regime. So I think for a lot of people, the regimented or the, the kind of the, the structure of it is reassuring and it's easy to follow. But for other people, they might feel that it is impersonal and they lack the human connection that they want from interaction with a therapist. So it can be, and some therapists are flexible enough to be able to implement the structure while maintaining 
this relationship. And I think this kind of happens when the, the more they go into it, but maybe other therapists are more structured. This works for some people too. You know, for some people, some people's brains work in this way of, oh, just give me this, this is what I'm going to do. And I do it and it's done, but others aren't, you know, and, and so it's, it's, it's a strength and a weakness in that way, but you're absolutely clear. It's really versatile. You, you know, it's delivered, you can do it by yourself or you can find it, uh, do it with a therapist. It's available via primary care. It's evidence-based as well. So it's got, I think it's got the highest evidence base. But not to, not to um, live in an echo chamber. We know that evidence is evidence. So research is research because it's research, because that's where the funding is, because there's a, we tend to research things that are easy to research that come in a standard box and CBT comes in a box. So it's easy to research, but there is so many other types of therapy and interventions that work with, for people um, that might not have as much strong evidence and research out there, but anecdotally can work. It, we tend to offer those as well, don't we? Yes. So you can get things like cognitive analytical therapy, interpersonal therapy, psychodynamic therapy, um, you can get these. I think it depends on the locality you're in as well and, and kind of what the trusts you have offered. Um, it, it's very much just depending on the person. And this is why I think when I see people, and this happens a lot, when I see people who come and say, I've tried everything and they've tried like three, four medications, that it, 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 it always feels really good to tell them how far they are from actually trying everything because the amount the, the kind of the repertoire of interventions that we have at this point is so vast that we really have a lot of options to try, you know, and, and I know not everything is perfect for everyone and that's completely normal because people's brains work differently. And even, even this depression that we're talking about as if it's one thing, the more we know about it, the more we're thinking it may be loads of different things because you can get the same illness. You can get increased or decreased sleep, increased or decreased appetite. This retardation, being really tired, not being able to move or being agitated and being irritable and, you know, wanting to move all the time. You, you can get different presentations. And for some people, things like SSRIs work. For other people, drugs that work on different transmitter systems work. For other people, drugs that work on inflammation work. For other people, therapy. So it just, the interventions are different for people. So that's what we're going to talk about in our next episode is medication, their types, SSRIs and stuff like that. But I think that today we talked a lot about depression and what it looks like, how we see it, how we assess it, how we diagnose it. And we talked about um, what makes depression depression, what makes it an illness. We talked a little bit about treatment. We're going to talk about treatment a little bit more in another episode and while we're talking about treatment we're going to also talk about bits of the brain that are affected how the treatment because the treatment works towards bits of the brain that we think might be affected in depression thank you very much Murad for for taking the time you're very welcome thank you for having me here I hope it's been uh, at least semi-useful Thank you for joining me today. Remember to check the show notes for helpful resources and support. If you enjoyed listening, subscribe to our channel and get notified about the latest episodes. This is Dr. Tagrid, wishing you well.